those of you who are new to retreats and new to retreats here wouldn't know that usually, almost always, um, talk about daily life and integrating practice with daily life comes at the very end of the retreat when we're getting ready to go home so that our, for good reason, so our mind isn't distracted, we're not uh, unduly concerned. with what we've left behind in a way, temporarily, so that we can really uh, practice here. But what I'd like to do tonight is turn that around and speak about daily life um, right now in the very first talk of the retreat in an attempt to convey a way of looking at practice that I hope is helpful for you. It's not the way, it is a way. In a certain manner of speaking, it's fine to use words or language like daily life and intensive practice, so that we're engaged in intensive practice on a retreat, and then when we finish, we'll go back to daily life. And I think most of us, or all of us, know what that means, what that's roughly pointing to. But if you look at life uh, without any concepts, including Buddhist ones, there's only daily life. Is there anyone here who doesn't have a daily life? And I know life in one sense here is rather different than where we've come from, probably. If it weren't, there would be no need for you to come here. And yet, uh, monasteries have a rather full and rich daily life, and so does this place. And daily life is what we have. It's life. That's all we have. Sometimes the form we use is sitting and silence and a certain style of walking and other times not. We're in an office, driving a car. So the forms vary. But always and everywhere, um, we're alive in this particular situation. If that's so, if all there is is daily life, then a very important question is, uh, or issue is, do we meet it? Do we meet daily life? Or does it pass us by? And of course, the answer of the Buddha is that a lot of it is passing us by. Uh, We're, in a certain sense, sleepwalking. We could be doing it rather successfully, but nonetheless, we're not fully alive in uh, the fullest potential that we have is not being developed. The reason I think it might be useful, I hope it's useful, to begin to speak about it now uh, is not simply methods and techniques which we will go into, 
but rather uh, there's an attitude which if it gets across to you I think could be very, very helpful. It's one to view life as a unified process. There really is only life now and forever as long as we're alive. And an image that or a metaphor that I, I, I hope is helpful for you is again one of breathing. Life is made up of exhalations and inhalations. If we fully exhale, then it's possible to fully inhale. If we don't, and if we don't fully exhale, the inhalation will be compromised. And so, just for physical health, it's very helpful to learn how to completely let go of what's over, let the stale air out, toxins and so forth, so there can be room for what's next, fresh energy in life. By that model, I hope we've all exhaled where we've come from, because the fact is we're here. And if we have completely, fully exhaled where we've come from, not too likely, but if we have to some degree, to that to that extent, we're able to participate here. Now, it isn't as difficult as it sounds, because if your mind is back there about some unfinished business, but you're mindful of it, you're quite awake with it, that's pr- then you're here. It's not the content. It's how you're relating to what's happening, so that you're fully present in this moment, having a memory or worrying about something that isn't here yet, but you know it. The unified approach is helpful in this way. Um, I think everyone or most of us are lay people. Of necessity, there there are always some exceptions, of necessity we will work, raise families, go to school, and so forth. Most of our life will not be on the cushion and it will not be in places like this. And unless we develop a view of practice that sees every moment of practice being rich and real and being providing us with the perfect materials to practice with, our practice will be second class. There'll be some calm, there'll be some stress reduction. Of course, you already have had some or you wouldn't be here. But I think the practice is designed to go deeper than that. And if most of our time is spent off the cushion, we really have to u- learn how to use that time. Now. I wouldn't be going through all this if, if we did know how to do it. But on, in my own uh, perception over the years, what tends to happen is something like this. I'm oversimplifying, but I hope there's some uh, a, a granule of truth in it. Typically, we come to practice, and perhaps at a place like this, because we've been wounded in life. And we um, crawl out of the battlefield and come into the uh, field hospital, in military terms, which is this. And in coming to the field hospital, um, in many ways it can be such a wonderful contrast to what we've crawled out from. We've gotten out of the range of fire, which means all those people who are loud and noisy and want to kill you and they eat meat and 
whatever else. Right? They just see you as an opportunity to make money. And whereas here, everyone is kind and gentle, and we have vegetables. And... Oh, finally. But you see, then we have to go back. So our job, Michael and I, our, the job we have, myself, if you know anything about military hospitals, is to get patients well enough so they go back into combat. I don't know if you knew that when you signed up. <laughs> but really, uh, even beyond that, is to, for that distinction to fall away altogether. Um, so that when we're here, we exhale what we've been doing, our job and so forth. That doesn't mean reject it but a certain mode of attention and what we are focus on. And here we uh, give full attention to what we're doing here. So in the broadest sense, when we go home, we'll have to exhale here, and then that will make room for inhaling what's next. But daily life here is, uh, in a way you could say, there's the big daily life, and then we come away from that and we come here, but then even within here, um, isn't the star of the show sitting? There he is, up there, our boss. Walking a close second, sometimes not so close, right? <laughs> Some people, it's the same. Good, that's the direction I'd like for us to go in. But you see, if... Uh, if we don't do that, what tends to happen is, uh, particularly if you love the practice and you find it valuable, love-intensive practice, this form of it, uh, when you leave here, you form a comparison. The mind forms a, a, a comparison, inescapable, uh, of this place where wonderful things go on and then what we have to go back to to cope and put up with and, until the next retreat and there could be a big chunk of time between leaving this retreat and the beginning of the next one. And often our attitude is very different. No matter how many times we hear mindfulness in all positions, all postures, whatever you do, and we say it here, we've already said it. Um, I think more has to be done or we have to find another way of really conveying why that's essential. And so now we're here and the daily life here, in contrast to, let's say, sitting and walking, which is the main formal practice, a lot of it, it's not that different. Don't we have to do number one and number two? <laughs> Back home as well. Don't we have to get dressed and undressed? We have to eat. We go somewhere. We wait. You have a job here. We'll talk about that in a moment. So there's a lot of daily life here. Relationship, oh no, there's, thank God, there's no relationship here. <laughs> Have a breather. But it's not true. There's relationship all over the place. It's seething with relationship. Very subtle, secret. Some of it not so secret. Uh, so even in our minds, as long as there are people, 
uh, the mind has reactions. It falls in love with them, as you know, the famous Vipassana romance. The new people don't know about this yet, but you may have one, where it's quite a miracle. Within one sitting, you court someone, you marry, you have children, you get divorced. <laughs> because they, when they get up from their cushion, they weren't quite what you thought they were. And it's over, finished. But then someone else who walks very slowly and gracefully comes and replaces them. Practice is working with that. It, it's not, uh, that isn't um, beneath our dignity to practice with, because that's what's there. That's exactly what's there. Uh, not liking that someone is wearing two socks that are different colors. <laughs> that's what's there. That's what's happening to you. And there's a certain resentment or annoyance. If you're up here as a couple, a number of you are and some of you are new, uh, I don't know how to break this to you. When we say silence, we really mean it. That's hard. I've done it. I've been up here as part of a couple, so has Michael. And what we're really suggesting is for the life of this retreat, uh, you practice on your own. It's difficult to do because there's the yearning to share what's happened. Uh, perhaps start seeing that uh, you could be helpful if a person is having a hard time, uh, share your triumphs and your difficulties. And then all kinds of imaginary things start going on in the mind, and we miss each other, whatever. That's all material to work with on the practice. And this may sound harsh or cold or cruel, but it's invaluable to take a break and to just practice like everyone else. If you're up here, I think there are a number of people who are. And we were, I don't know if we were explicit, so I'm being explicit now. The end of the retreat will come all too suddenly, and you'll have plenty of time to come back together again. It'll be all that much more rich. Or you'll get divorced. I mean, I don't know which. <laughs> depends what the truth is, because all retreats do is help you see the truth. It's not pro or against relationship. It's pro-truth. So what's there is just going to come out more clearly. But for the moment, let's be more positive than that. Your relationship will be strengthened and you'll have this shared experience, shared torture to talk about when you get back. Uh, you have a roommate, perhaps, or you're part of a work team. So you can see, uh, these are the materials to practice with that also exist when we leave here. And if you're willing to practice with them, that is, when you're in the hall and you're sitting, totally exhale your yogi job. Let's move to that right now. Just really sit. And when the bell goes off and it's time to, to go to whatever is next, let go of sitting in here. Exhale it. So you can fully inhale walking meditation or lunch or your job. And so it goes. Learn how to do that. Learn how to wholeheartedly enter into what's there and to wholeheartedly let it go. And then to enter and drop it. Enter and drop it. You have such a wonderful opportunity to do that. It's a great way to live. I'm not saying it's easy. Now, some of you who have come here for years may uh, have been surprised or disappointed that you couldn't pick your jobs, as I understand it. That's 
That was our intent. I don't know if it was followed up. I hope so. Because um, in my own practices, in different uh, styles of practice, I think there are essentially three ways to do this. One way is people pick whatever work they want. And there are people who come here early, hours early. I know because they've told, confessed. <laughs> Because they want to get the job. It used to be a library, you know, dusting the books, you know. <laughs> you dust the Majjhima Nikaya and then you go take a walk. Now we don't have a library, but I'm sure there are other kind of soft, cushy jobs. Or for whatever reason, you just love to garden. And so if you get her early enough, you can get the gardening job. So one way is to just leave it up to you. Another way, which is not practical for us, is when you live at a monastery. If you live at a monastery uh, for an extended period of time and there's a teacher, uh, the teacher gets to know you, you get to know the teacher, and uh, skillful teachers give you work, as the song goes, what you get what you need, not what you want. I remember when I first uh, landed in Korea, um, myself and two other uh, Americans were the first Koreans to practice in Korea at that time, and there were, we had a kind of uh, entourage of lay people who were just so proud of us that here are these Americans coming all the way across the ocean to come to Korea and practice, and finally we got to the monastery that I was to live at for quite a while, a year, and they uh, gave, when my turn came, my introduction, because I was a professor at that time, an ex-professor, and the schools I taught at, and it was wondering, it just went on and on. I couldn't understand all of it, but some of it was very obvious. And fortunately, I was a good teacher, so being a college professor and having had that work, I was assigned the toilet. <laughs> it was right. It was correct. But that requires trust and time to get to know each other. And so we're here. We have a, a, a small, hopefully vibrant, little community practicing together and then we'll disband in about nine days so the other way which is quite common and they all have different virtues they're all useful I'm not saying what we've done is the only way it isn't in this one uh, it's really you come and it's just first whoever comes we just go down the list at least that's what's supposed to happen and it's the luck of the draw whatever you get you get and uh, some of the things that happen, I know because these are real people who tell me this on a previous retreat. Uh, supposing you wind up uh, in the dishes, washing the dishes, that big machine. This was in the summertime. And then you see somebody else, they wound up dusting one big volume in the library. And then they're out in their plaid shorts and, you know, bright summer shirt, taking a walk around the loop, and there you are. It's like a galley slave, you know, sweating with a bandana around your neck. I paid the same money as that person. I came here to retreat. I'm a commuter. I put two hours in on the commuter. I didn't come here to do this work, and on and on. Resentment and, whoa, what rich and wonderful material to practice with. <laughs> but that's not why the person came here. This is, comes, this is a quote you know, from an actual person. They came here to cop some calm. And they don't want to be told about how valuable work is and how rich it can be when you're one with it and intimate with it and learn from it and so forth. They're not interested. 
They're on a commuter train two hours a day. They work weekends. They sometimes work 10-hour days and longer. And they just want to take a job that's as brief as possible, as easy as possible, and get to that cushion. So uh, we're not doing it to be sadists. I don't think so. It's more to flush out what's going on. And what I'm getting at is if you develop the attitude uh, of practicing with whatever life provides you with, it's a wonderful uh, attitude. Attitude's not a small thing. In other words, it's, it's a, if it's genuine, and it takes a while for it to be genuine. And as you know, resentment is not limited to here. We have work situations at home where we see people getting better paid than us or whatever it is. You know what we're capable of, what the mind is capable of. Do I, I don't have to remind anyone. It's endless. So we have a microcosm here. We have to dress and undress and eat and so forth. And it's wonderfully protected and simplified. And you're encouraged over and over again to really try to do each thing with sensitivity and with care. You won't have an opportunity like this when you get home. Because typically it's much more highly charged. And you don't have the support of other people who have the same interest. If you can learn even a little bit of that and take it back home, uh, little by little I think what you can do is dissolve this boundary, this uh, conceptual barrier between so-called intensive practice and so-called daily life. Actually, if you really practice in daily life, it is intensive practice. If you really try to stay awake in relationship, in marriage, in raising a family, in work, if that isn't intensive, I don't know what is. But we tend to have created a split where the real thing is this, is sitting. Now, in my own practices and in my own teaching, it's a very difficult dichotomy uh, to dissolve. And I've compared notes with others, and there are different styles of teaching and practicing. So this is just what I've learned. Uh, obviously, I... Uh, value a view of practice that is prior to any particular form. It's not linked to either sitting or walking or daily life. It's about being awake to life in whatever form it manifests for you. So if you give uh, teachings and you really talk up sitting, which of course, by the way, I love, I do lots of it, and I think it's very special but then again, it isn't, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. If you talk up sitting and how important retreats are and how important uh, inc more hours during the day, find time to sit more hours during the day, uh, and if you do a good job of it, people move in that direction, and then daily life starts to become very sloppy because somehow what's conveyed is this is not really the practice. Uh, you know, keep your daily life reasonable, it, the precepts manageable, because then when you get to the cushion, you can be really concentrated. So, in a sense, keep daily life under control. You know, make sure the children get enough to eat and they get to college, because <laughs> they're going to squawk otherwise. And the wife or the husband or the partner 
is cared for so it doesn't become a problem, so we can get at what's really important, sitting. So then you see that, I'm making a cartoon. And you move to the other direction by talking how vital daily life is, which of course is true, it's the life we have. And if you make a good case for that, suddenly no one's sitting so much anymore. And now they're all, then uh, first the sitting gets extolled and becomes the barometer of everything. Things are worthwhile insofar as they help you sit. Then you move to the other direction, and now, uh, I think in part because the lay uh, movement in the West is getting very strong, not just in Theravadan Buddhism, but in Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, there are many very serious lay people like ourselves. So now you hear things like, oh, I have uh, three live-in Zen masters, they're my children. I don't think so. I think a Zen master is a little different than your children. <laughs> or now, you can't really be a good practitioner unless you have children. How could you know what it's all about unless you have children? So now we get back to, uh, and meditation, sitting is useful insofar as it helps you live daily life. That's a common one. The real test of your practice is it comes out in the wash. How are you at work? How are you in relationships? And that's kind of close to the truth. But to me, it isn't the truth. Because it's not that anything is standing for anything else. There's only life. And so, it's when you're sitting, that's your life right now. It's not that this is some uh, artificial activity that you put up with in order to get on with the real thing. This is it. Whatever we encounter is our life. I don't know if that's gotten through to you. Whatever we encounter. So if we've elected to do this stuff, this is what, how we're spending our time. And so it's not, it doesn't have to be a means to some end. We're always, a, the calculating mind is always taking over. I'll do this, but I want to get that for it. Maybe it's not necessary because this is its, as a means and an end at the same time. So, in, the, in a profound sense, I honestly feel this. The sitting and walking is not more important than daily life. Uh, it's also not less important. And however w- way you want to switch it around, life is prior to these forms. And yet, in a manner of speaking, we can appreciate the uniqueness of all the different forms so that sitting, of course, has something unique. Uh, an ingenious invention of such a dramatic oversimplification. I don't think it's over. It's not simple enough because we know how complicated our minds get even when we're alone. It's uh, an ingenious invention where so many of the challenges and uh, problems in our life are temporarily bracketed and there we are, we've agreed to these rules, these conditions with in this case with company, which helps, to sit down and be with ourselves. I think the whole, finally all of this is about that, to get us to look at ourselves. That's how hard it is. We don't want to do it. We have endless ways of escaping that, of blaming others, of seem really close, come close, but they're subtle escapes. And a, a good retreat is designed to help you really get to know yourself in the most intimate way. 
So we do all these things, and that particular form has something distinctive to offer, precisely because you're not eating, you're not in relationship. You have no job, so to speak, while you're doing the sitting. Your job is just to be. And that's a, a, not a small thing, that contribution. So it's, it's also an expressive act when you sit. When we think of a, an expressive act, we, we think of dancing or some kind of movement that's dramatic, ice skating, playing a musical instrument, it's expressive. When you sit, if you really sit as you ripen into that, uh, it's a very subtle expressive act. Uh, it's hard to put into words. I mean, I could try, but it comes out corny. In other words, the, the, a human being sitting with dignity and composure and dropping everything with, uh, in order to be with themselves and using a physical posture that supports that, a posture that is a statement, it's body language, is finally, I'm temporarily dropping everything but this. And uh, for me, it's a lovely form. So it's special. But then if you dip it in bronze and make a trophy out of it, it uh, poisons itself and it brings you down with it. Because now you've gotten attached to a particular form and as you've heard over and over again, attachment is suffering. Have you found that to be true? Well, if it's true, then it also applies to this. In other words, if you become fixated on a particular posture, and a particular mode of practice, the beauty of it um, is tarnished because it can incapacitate you from doing mainly the rest of your life. And in a subtle way, it's discrediting the rest of your life. What it's saying is, this is the real thing. I'm spiritual. And then there's all that worldly stuff, hustle and bustle, running here, running there. Uh, to me, that's not the deepest way of looking at it. So do you see how, what a subtle, uh, all the, the intricacies of everything that we have to move with? Now, I'm suggesting this theme early in the retreat not to distract you and bring you back to home, where you'll, you'll be soon, but rather to um, alert you to the possibilities of when you're in the hall, sit. Uh, when you're chopping vegetables, chop vegetables. You've heard these things over and over and over again. Uh, please, let's not let them become cliches and sort of dead pieties. Uh, so we have an opportunity to actually live in a very beautiful way. Now, we'll fail much of the time. We won't remember to do what's being suggested. I'm suggesting that when you get dressed, you have an opportunity here to, to do it mindfully. Take a small one. Take a sh when you take your shower tomorrow morning, uh, see if you can just take a shower. It doesn't have to take any longer. I know that there are people waiting. There's a difference between taking a shower and thinking about what you're going to do later on or whether you have an interview today or not and taking a shower. Now, when you take a shower, you can see the mind fabricating all kinds of other things because somehow, even though showers are nice, it's not enough. 
And here, no scents. You can't use shampoo with any scent. There's no fun left. The one little thing we had, they take it away from us. <laughs> and let that spread in small ways, because you have the time to do it. If you have a rotten job, if, you, if the luck of the karmic draw is that you got dishwashing, <laughs> or some other uh, activity that you really don't like. Um, I'm not telling you to behave uh, in some ideal way with a halo over your head. Uh, be honest. Because in order to fully do your yogi job, you, you really usually, you have to see how you're not fully doing it. It's not, an effort, it's not a muscular kind of thing with veins popping out of your neck where you're really trying to be mindful. That'll last about an hour. You'll be exhausted. The practice will be so grim and dreary. Well, don't you have anything practical to say to help us with this? Yeah, a few things. Whatever the job is, just as in the world outside, uh, the guidelines that come from the Buddha's teaching are to do it with excellence. It's not that we become spiritual and become uh, total misfits in everything else. There's no split. So that if you're doing something, really do it, just as you would outside. It's fine to be competent. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I think uh, it's gotten a bad press. It doesn't have to have to do with ambition and striving and uh, elbowing people out of the way or elitism. And anything, it just shows your appreciation and respect for life. So step number one is whatever your job is, what is your correct situation? What is it asking? What, what is it? If it's vacuuming, it's pretty clear. Then vacuum. Some jobs are not as clear, so you might have to look carefully. But we have a second job. Uh, our job is not simply to be efficient and to do it do a good job. We also are, while we're working on the vegetables, we're working on ourselves. While we're uh, moving the vacuum cleaner and working with it, we're working on ourselves. And one way of looking at it, which has helped me, and um, I hope it helps you, it's a, a very economical term because it applies to virtually everything we do, and that is Intimacy, intimacy of practice. Dogen, who was a very great Japanese teacher, was asked, what is the awakened mind? And he said, it's that mind um, which is intimate with all things, with anything, everything. So nothing's left out. But intimate here is not some sentimental uh, tears dripping down your cheek and how you, we're all one. It's not an, another ideology. Uh, the practice will show you if you're intimate or not. If you're doing, working on the, the dishwashing machine and a part of you is in resentment or it's looking forward to getting it over already so that you can uh, get at least half a walk to the lake even if you can't go all the way around, you're not intimate with what's happening. Uh, you, there's separation, there's division, there's dualism. There's conflict, there's struggle, and you, in the in a certain terms, you're, in certain terms, you're not fully alive in those moments. We're not. But in a split second, in a breath moment, 
you can come to see the separation and feel how you're not connected. And in the seeing of separation, typically which is through thinking, we humans, as we do something, we have this need to constantly think about it or to think about other things. But fortunately it's observable, so it's not fatal. We see it, and as we see it, something perhaps falls away, maybe for just a few moments. If you're with the vegetables, uh, can you smell them? Is there a texture to them? Do you feel them? Are you really in there with the vegetables? Now, other jobs are not as perhaps intrinsically attractive. I mean, I I like vegetables, but it's the same principle. That is, you become very sensitive to separation, become very sensitive to how you could even get the job done well, be extremely effective, and even get compliments on it, and you're hardly there. A A corner of you, we're so good and so brilliant, a corner of us can get it done, and mostly we're out to lunch while we're doing it. But you can see that, and it falls away. This is not a a trivial accomplishment. Now, uh, we don't have a lot of time. It obviously goes into all the points of the practice, but I would like to leave you with a couple of ideas. One is that conscious breathing can be of help but you'll have to find out if it can and to what degree. Um, No practice is for everyone. Uh, If you can begin to keep the breath in mind during these situations when you're waiting, during the situations when you're whatever it is that makes up our day, not just, I don't mean in the hall. Uh, What the breath can do, uh, it can help Uh, cut down on thinking, unnecessary thinking, it can stabilize you in the moment. And it's practicing being in the present moment. If you're with a breath, the breath is happening in the present. The beauty of the breath uh, is that it's uh, just there. It's portable. Wherever we go, it is. No matter what your job is, no matter what part of the IMS you find yourself at, you're breathing. And so uh, the Buddha's ingenious idea is to just take this very obvious fact that we all share and use it. Uh, When it comes to certain activities, can you um, unite the conscious breathing with, let's say, your yogi job? The main thrust is always, now and forever, is to be mindful of what you're doing. So the real question is, does conscious breathing help you do that? You have to give it a try to find out. Uh, and I, it's not that you can be mindful of every breath throughout the day. Or even be mindful, forget about the breath throughout the day. But it's a, a kind of learning, and here again, attitude is so central. If you make it into another grim, ambitious achievement, uh, it won't go very far. Lately, I've been, uh, I w- watched a... Uh, a very young child learning how to walk recently, and I was, it was very moving. One of the things I saw is that uh, the child gets up and falls down, gets up and falls down, gets up, no whining, no complaining. Uh, they even, don't even seem to be unhappy. But the mama told me, or one mama told me, that as they get older, 
uh, and they start learning, even as they're, they're not perfect walkers, but they're getting closer to it, they become more like us. But there is a period where they're not discouraged by the fact that they fall down, I don't know, hundreds of times. It's just, that's how you learn that. And then the day comes where you're running and doing all these other kinds of things. Uh, if you can have that attitude, it's not a matter of uh, having a norm as to what percentage of the day you're supposed to be mindful or how many breaths you're supposed to set the Olympic record of being with breaths. Uh, you take it each situation at a time. Uh, it's relaxed, it's light, but there is a sincerity to it and there is a uh, commitment to it. It's just we have to come to a commitment that's balanced. After all, your awareness is always there. It's a matter of remembering to come back to it so that it helps you. Moreover, certain situations don't lend themselves uh, to have the breath uh, be helpful. For example, um, if you had a job, I don't think we have any jobs like that here, like Charlie Chaplin in modern times, I don't think we would tell him to practice Anapanasati with the assembly line. He couldn't do it. You know, tightening, screw tightening and tightening. So there are certain tasks that if you tried to unite the breath with it, it would probably make it worse. And there, some of you will not be so drawn to keeping the breath in mind so often or even at all. Don't worry about that. It's a useful method. I would suggest you try it. If you take to it, uh, and some people uh, take to it a lot, but even if you uh, find it somewhat useful, you'll see that it can help you out throughout life. And it's something that is as useful when you get home as here. Um, let me close. We only have a couple of minutes. So you understand um, that being mindful of a particular activity as trivial or as unimportant as you may think it is, is not trivial or unimportant. In one way, of course, we know it's not. It's our life. But put in Dharma terms. There's a famous uh, exchange where a teacher is asked, what is enlightenment? And the answer is eating rice and drinking tea. Okay. Eating rice and drinking tea uh, would be the equivalent of doing each thing wholeheartedly. But there are two sides to that. One, at the beginning of our practice, it's a practice in order to come to real clarity. But uh, as we begin to taste real clarity, or even awakening, pres real presence, uh, that's what's eating the rice, and that's what's drinking the tea. So it's a view of an awakened mind in action. Enlightenment is not just sitting under a tree or on a cushion. And so it's a, a much more full view of both the development and the expression of an awakened mind in activity. I hope that... Another way of putting it, some of you may have heard the phrase, sometimes Dharma path, the Dharma paths are referred to in all the Buddhist traditions as the true way, the great way or the true way. There are a number of book titles that have that. And when we hear the true way, perhaps we think of something far off and exotic. 
or some extraordinary fruit that will finally come out of years of this practice. Maybe. I'm not denying uh, dramatic breakthroughs that happen to human beings. But the true way is happening right now, every time you're true to yourself. What's true is what's true for you in this moment. If you're unhappy uh, with the food here, uh, most of us love it, but not everyone does. Many people have diet that's strikingly different and it's quite an adjustment. The true way is being true to the way it is for you, that uh, you really are unhappy about the food or you're unhappy about the teaching or you don't like the job or whatever it is. So the true way is not some golden light out there. It's when you're true to yourself, that you are uh, fully present to the way it is for you in a given moment. And so in closing, please Let's use this wonderful opportunity to, of course, give our best to the sitting and walking. That's what we do mostly here. And yet, uh, in between the cracks, there's an awful lot of daily life going on, using that term in an ordinary sense. And if we can begin to value wherever we are, simply because that's where we are, because we're alive in that moment, I think you'll find it very helpful. Uh, I've always felt that there isn't a need for integration talk. The last day it's usually called an integration talk. How to integrate what you learn here from what you learn, what you have to learn when you get home. If you develop this attitude or this approach to living, then what is there to integrate? Uh, because wherever you are, uh, that you're, you're encountering life. And refinement comes out of this um, endless application of sensitivity and attention and learning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.